0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you guys remember from last week, Paul gave his resume. Uh, do we have handouts? Are they making their way around? Yeah. Does everybody have a hand? Okay. So Paul gave his resume of his past life. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, I'm this great Jewish leader. Um, you know, I stack my resume up against all these people. I'm the best of the best. And he said, Whatever all that was, I consider a loss. Compared to knowing Jesus. And so Paul has this desire, I want to know Jesus, I want to know his power, I want to pursue Christ. And so that's pretty much where we left off last week at the end of basically chapter 3, verse 11. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 12, and let's read verses 12 through 14. Okay, everybody there? Philippians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 14, pressing on toward the goal. All right, here we go. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, in verse 12, what does Paul say? I haven't arrived! I really want to know Jesus. I want to suffer with Jesus. I want to experience the power of Jesus. I, want, I desire to know more about Christ, but I haven't arrived. I haven't already been made perfect. I'm not there yet. Who's the greatest apostle to ever live? The one writing this, right? Paul. And Paul says, I haven't arrived. So, is there ever such a thing as a Christian who quote-unquote has arrived to where they're spiritually mature and they've gotten to a point where they no longer struggle with sin. I was flipping through the channels. I told you guys this story before, so pardon me if you've heard it, but I was maybe about 10 years ago, I was flipping through the channels um, like the Christian TV that you shouldn't watch because it's dangerous to your theological health. So I was flipping through the Christian channels and I came across this one televangelist with the slick back white hair and he said, I feel sorry for y'all Christians that still sin." I don't struggle with sin anymore. When the devil come to me, I just say, devil, get out of here. I, I don't struggle with sin ever again. I feel sorry. I pity you Christians who still struggle with sin. What do you think about that? I think somebody's talking, about, talking? Barking up, the wrong, barking up the, law, the wrong tree. All right. So let's talk about living the by Yeah, living on the mountaintop by himself. Yeah, ask his wife that question <laughs> and his kids. Let's talk about the perfectionist heresy, and I use the word heresy, it's not a damnable heresy where if you believe this you'll be sent to hell, but it is maybe a false teaching. Um, The perfectionist false teaching would say this, that we can achieve a state of sinless perfection here on earth and actually cease from sinning. Now there are some denominations out there that actually believe that. That you can, at some point in your life, reach that state where you no longer sin. Now, how long you stay there, I'm not sure. But you can achieve it. What does the greatest apostle who's ever lived say in verse 12? I haven't obtained this. I'm not perfect. Now, when we think of the word perfect, we normally think of I'm not like sinless. I'm not... uh, you know, I haven't reached the state of perfection. When Paul, in verse 12, when Paul uses the word perfect, that word, that Greek word actually means mature or full grown. What he's saying is, I have not reached a level of completed maturity or absolute perfection. I'm still in the process of growth. Now, does that not give you encouragement that Paul can say that? I'm not there yet. Now, all of us should... Um, how, how do I put this? We never want to be satisfied with where we are spiritually. Okay, we never want to be satisfied with where we are spiritually. We want to grow, don't we? But we need to be realistic about our growth. Are, are, we, go, are we ever going to attain this perfect state? Like, have you ever heard somebody say, like, you know, he's the perfect Christian? Is there such a thing as a perfect Christian? No. And we need to not fool ourselves into thinking there's this some level up there that if I just got to this high level. And so Paul's saying, listen, I still struggle. I want to be there. So, in a way, what Paul is saying is this I have been saved. Remember, he said that last week that a righteousness comes through faith in Christ? I have been saved. Past tense. Not only when Jesus died on the cross, but the moment that I placed my faith in Jesus, I was justified. I was declared not guilty. I was saved. Past tense. If you're a Christian, you were saved. And one day you will be saved. There's still an aspect of our salvation that hasn't occurred yet. It'll be complete, it'll be brought to culmination the new glorified body in the presence of Christ in eternity. That's a future reality. So I have been saved past tense I will be saved when Christ comes back and I go to heaven so the real question is okay what do I do now how do I live in the present do I just sit by and wait to be raptured do I do nothing and just let go and let God am I passively just waiting on God to do everything in in my Christian life I don't do anything do I collect my fire insurance and coast knowing that I get to avoid hell what do I do? Do I just sit back and say, well, all right, I'm saved. That's cool. Now I'm just kind of, kind of twiddle my thumbs and wait around to be this great Christian. Paul's already answered this question. Go back to chapter um, 2, verses 12 and 13. What did Paul already tell us to do? Work, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you need to put forth spirit-empowered, grace-empowered effort to grow in Christ because God works in you. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. Notice what he says. I press on. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. Not that I've already been perfect. Not that I'm completely mature, but I Press on. I press on, which means continually pursuing, chasing, running. Paul is a sports fan. He uses a lot of athletic imagery. This idea of pressing on was used of a sprinter who exerted aggressive energy to win the race. I'm going to press on, I'm going to exert some energy. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to pursue Christ. Now, this is where I'm interested to hear all the different translations of the end of verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. The ESV says, make it my own. Was it, King James? Anybody have a King James? Does it use the word apprehended? Or something like that. Possessed, possessed. Possess, okay. So. Okay. Okay. So, so you have lay hold. What does yours say, Justin? Possess. Mine says took. took or took hold? took hold. Took hold. Okay. Lay hold. Took hold. Anybody have a different translation? grabbed hold okay that's probably the best translation right there Um, what translation was the grabbed hold (laughs) okay okay so the greek word means to seize to grab to take possession to tackle now let's ask a question When you see a linebacker tackle somebody, what are they doing? They're exerting energy to what? Grab a hold of something. Okay. So when you grab a hold, when you tackle, when you possess, does that sound passive? Do you see football players being passive out on the football field? What are they doing? They're actively, aggressively trying to tackle each other. So this word is, I'm, I'm actively trying to grab hold of, what does Paul say? It. Because Christ has grabbed hold of me. So it brings up a question. You've got to ask a question. Paul's talking about grabbing or holding or tackling, seizing, possessing. What is Paul grabbing so tightly? Well, let's ask the question in reverse because Paul does tell us in a roundabout way. Notice the second half of verse 12. Christ Jesus has what? Grabbed hold of me. So who grabbed hold of who first? Jesus, in a sense, did what? He tackled us. He took a hold of us. Christ hunted us down in his grace. Christ made us his own. Think about the imagery there. Were we worth pursuing? Were we worth being chased down? What did Jesus do? Jesus chased us down and he grabbed a hold of us. He took possession of us. He owns us in his powerful grip. So Paul says, listen, Christ Jesus has has, has taken a hold of me. He's grabbed me. So in turn, I want to turn around and do what? grab hold of him now what does that mean what is that what's the purpose of what is it i mean abstractly yeah i'm going to grab hold of jesus what what does that mean well why were we saved in the first place romans 8:29 tells us why god saved us why god predestined us For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why has God saved us? To make us look more and more like Jesus. That's why you've been saved. For God's glory, for you to look and act and smell and relate And think more like Jesus. Okay, so why did Jesus take hold of you? Why did Jesus save you? So that you could look more like him. That is why Christ laid hold of us. To make us like him. So what's Paul's burning desire? I want to be like Christ. I press on. I make it my ambition. I want to grab hold of Jesus so tightly that I look more and more like him. Because Christ took hold of me. And that's why Christ saved me. So that I would look more and more like him. And so what does he say in verse 13? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I'm not there yet. I'm not fully looking like Jesus. When I step foot into heaven, I will receive the fullness of my salvation. But right now, I'm still in the growth process. I want more of Christ. I want to look more Christ-like. I want to be more Christ-like. I'm just not there yet. I'm not mature. I'm not been made perfect. But what do I do? There's one thing I do. Remember Curly from City Slickers? There's one thing. What's the one thing that he does? What does he say? forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead. What's behind? Forgetting those things that are behind him. What what did Paul just list all those things that were behind him? The accolades, the accomplishments, the things we looked at last week, sins, habits, whatever whatever things that are weighing you down. Paul says, listen, I am not bound by my past. My past affects me, but I'm not going to live in the past. I'm not going to be weighed down by my past. And I'm not going to keep going back to my past. Does it help to go back to your past? Now, can you reflect upon your past and can that help you? But do you want to live there? Paul says, I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm a new creation in Christ. That's my old life. I was a Pharisee. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I'm forgetting all that. I don't want to go back there. I want to move forward. I'm straining. Look what he says there. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining, straining toward what lies ahead. Again, athletic imagery. It's used of a runner stretching every ounce of their muscles to the limit. So it's this running metaphor, this tackling metaphor. It's almost like you know, like a linebacker, if you want to think about it. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm running. I'm sprinting. I'm tackling. I'm exerting as much energy through the power of the Holy Spirit to become more Christ-like. And I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. And I don't want my past to bog me down. I'm forgetting from what's behind. I'm just keeping my eyes on what's ahead. I want Jesus. Does this happen automatically? Like I said a few weeks ago, does it happen by osmosis? Do you go to bed at night, put the Bible on your head, wake up, and you've grown? No, it requires you to put forth some effort through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, what does Paul say? I press on, there's the word again, I press on toward the goal for the prize Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's he talking about there? The prize. This is a running imagery. The prize. Oftentimes the victor, like in the Olympics, is called up on the platform to receive the prize. So Paul says, there's a prize ahead of me. I want to receive that prize. Now why is it called an upward call? Upward call. Oftentimes the victor is called up on the platform to receive the prize. Oh, I'm sorry. The prize is the scepter given to the winner of the race representing victory. But what's the prize? Who is the prize? Jesus. John Piper says this in his book, God is the Gospel. He says, if you could have heaven... With no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauty you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? Can we really say that we're being prepared for heaven where Christ himself, not his gifts, will be the supreme treasure? How many Christians look forward to heaven... Because of the streets of gold and uh, no sickness and all that stuff. But what's the prize? Is the prize heaven or is the prize Jesus? Jesus? The prize is Jesus. Heaven's the byproduct. Who cares if you get heaven and Jesus isn't there? The, the prize is Christ himself. Now, all, now the byproduct and all the glorious things that happen in heaven, that's just icing on the cake compared to what we get in Christ. Okay? So that's Paul's heart here. Paul's, I'm straining I'm not there yet. Do you hear the angst? Is there such a thing as spiritual angst? Is there, are you allowed to have spiritual angst? Paul has it right here. I'm not there yet. I want to grow. I want to know Jesus more. I want to be more Christ-like. I desire it. I want it. I'm not there yet. I, I have a holy dissatisfaction with where I am. But I know that there's a goal in front of me and it's Christ. All right, let's move on to our future home. So let's continue to read 315 through chapter 4, verse 1, and I'll explain why we're going into chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, so verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. So he's given this extended speech about his past life, what he's passionately pursuing now. And then in verses 15 and 16, he's going to give three commands to the Philippian church. First of all, he begins to focus on thinking. What does he say in verse 15? Let those of us who are mature think this way. We've seen this word think before. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude as Christ. Think like Christ. Have the mind of Christ. It's the same word. This word think or attitude or mind... Occurs at least eight times in the book of Philippians. And so Paul is always talking about having the, the the mind of Christ, having right thinking, to be unified in our thinking. Let those who are mature think this way. So Paul is saying, Listen, a true sign of spiritual maturity is that you desire to obtain the prize of Christ. What is so like if somebody came to you and said man, I really want to desire Christ. I'm not there yet, but I want Him. I want to be like Him. I want to, I want to suffer with Him. I, I want His power. I want more of Jesus. I want to look more like Jesus. Would you look at them and say, man, you're a spiritually mature Christian. Would you say that to them? What would you say? The, Paul says, if you think like that, you're mature. Now, the exact opposite. What would an immature Christian sound like? Nah, I don't want to grow. I'm content with where I'm at. If Jesus comes back tomorrow, cool. If not, I'm just going to kind of go on my merry way. I don't really, you know, want to look like Jesus. I'll just kind of be content with salvation. But what, what's the sign of maturity? Being content with just kind of everything or this desire to know Christ. And that's what Paul says there. Those who are mature think this way. So spiritual maturity is you're thinking about growing in Christ, pursuing Christ, Okay? Now, secondly, Paul is going to issue a warning to these perfectionist people that there may have been some people in the church that kind of thought they, were, they had arrived. We are the super spiritual. We don't need to be told by Paul what to do because we have attained this super spiritual state. Notice what he says there. And if anyone of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. If you think you've attained it, if you think you've arrived... If you think that you're sinless and and you don't have to worry about this pursuit because you've already arrived, God will show that to you. And then thirdly, in verse 16, Paul gives an exhortation. The ESV says, let us hold true to what we've obtained. I think the NIV says, let us live up to Anybody have a different translation besides hold to, live up to in verse 16? Walk. 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 What does it say, walk? Walk by the same rule. Okay. That's actually probably a more literal translation. Because what the Greek word there means is, is to march in a row as a soldier. Which means what? To have a disciplined and orderly walk. Do you guys have New American Standard? Or New King James? or? Okay. Yeah, anybody have a New American Standard? I'm just, just curious with the different translations. It's interesting how they translate that particular Greek word. It really means to march in a disciplined walk like a soldier. So it's interesting. What is your saying? Living. Okay, so living, walking, holding. What is Paul saying? What have we attained so far? He says, only let us hold fast to what we've attained. The gospel. So basically he's saying, listen, you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now diligently live it out. And don't just live it out haphazardly, but like soldiers in a row marching, let it be a disciplined part of your lifestyle. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, what does Paul say? For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what we've attained, right? That's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? Not works. We don't boast in our salvation. But what does verse 10 say, the very next verse? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul here is saying, listen... You've been saved by grace. You've obtained the salvation. Now, turn around and like an orderly soldier marching in in, in a row, pursue that. Walk in that. Be disciplined in that pursuit. Don't be half hazard. And so it's an exhortation to individual Christians, but I think it's also to the entire church. Let us, but all of us, hold to what we've obtained. So think about this metaphor. Think about how important this imagery of soldiers marching together in a row is such a powerful metaphor for how we are to live our lives together in community as Christ church. What does it mean we're all marching together? We're marching together side by side in the gospel. Have we not seen this before? Go back to chapter 1, verse 27. We've seen this before. Paul has introduced this theme earlier. Verse, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life, does that not sound like living it out? Let your manner of life, your conduct, the way you walk, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You're together. You're side by side. You're marching together. You're walking together. You're in this together. You're supporting one another. You're soldiers in the trenches. You're living life together in the gospel and the power that God gives you. And you're living this out in real ways. So Paul's saying there. Now, in verse 17, it's interesting. What does Paul say? Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have. Now, this may sound a little arrogant. What do you mean, Paul? imitate me i thought we were to imitate christ are we to imitate christ yes are we to imitate those who have a strong walk with christ yes now ultimately we are accountable to christ and should follow him alone but he gives us models and those stronger and more mature in the faith to encourage and equip us first corinthians 4 16 what does paul say I urge you then be imitators of me. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-9. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you ourselves as an example to imitate. Do you have somebody in your life who's more mature than you that you look up to and you emulate, imitate, look at their example? Not that you worship them, okay? I'm not saying you worship them, you idolize them, you put them on a pedestal, they never fail. But is there somebody in your life that's advancing beyond you that you look to that, like, I want to be that person when I grow up, even if you're like seven years old. I still am that person I want to be when I grow up. Hopefully there's somebody in your life or maybe in at times in your life, a mentor or a spiritual leader that, that you looked at and said, you know what, that person has a strong walk with Christ and I want to follow the example of that person. Not that they never sin, not that they're never going to let you down, but there's just somebody. So like, for example, I was talking about, I can't remember who I talked about this the other day with. I'm in so many different contexts. So if I, I don't think it was in this group. Okay. This is you. This is not on your notes, okay? This is a freebie for tonight, okay? So every single Christian should have a Paul in their life. And what I mean by a Paul is that you should have somebody in your life that's more spiritually mature that you can look up to, that's pouring into you, that's encouraging you, that's mentoring you, okay? Now, you should also have a Barnabas in your life. And a Barnabas is somebody that's kind of equal with you, that comes alongside you, that's an encouragement with you. They're not necessarily pouring into your life as a mentor, but they're, they're encouraging you side by side. You're, you're, kind of, you're kind of equal spiritually. And then at the same time, you should have a Timothy. There should be somebody in your life that you're bringing along, that you're encouraging, that you're raising up, that you're mentoring, that, you are, that, that you're the Paul to them. And so, as a healthy Christian, you'd have all three of these in your life. You'd have a Paul. You'd have a barn Maybe a bunch of barnes And does that, does that concept make sense? Now, finding those people is hard. Investing. And so, in my life, that's kind of the model I've tried to live by. I've got I've got a few Pauls in my life. They aren't in this church. There are pastors outside this church that I still spend time with that mentored me when I was a youth pastor, when I was younger, that I still get on the phone and call them when I have problems. Say, how in the world do I deal with this at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Because I can't talk about you guys to you guys. No. You understand what I'm saying? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, so, you know, and, and, and obviously there's the elders that are kind of some Pauls to me, but I would probably consider maybe the elders more Barnabases. And then there's, there's Timothy's. And so I would just encourage you, you know, who's your Paul? Who are your Barnabases? And and who's your Timothy? And just pray about how God may may orchestrate that in your life. Um, It'd be a healthy church if that would be happening. Because you'd be having a lot of leaders emerging, and then you'd just have a lot of encouragement. So anyway, that's a freebie for tonight. All right? Now, last week, Paul started out by saying, who let the dogs out? Remember? (laughs) You're like, who? Who? Who let the dogs out? Back, Look at, back at chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. So there was this group of false teachers that had crept in the church, and they were destroying the gospel by making people get circumcised as an requirement for salvation. Paul's going to return to that group of people, possibly in verses 18 and 19. He's going to deal a final blow to these false, false teachers. So what does he say in verse 18? For many... Of whom I have often told you, and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Paul's tearful about this. Paul is saddened by this. He says there are many, many. Notice that. There are many who walk as enemies of the cross. and He's he's burdened by that. Now, back then, there were many that walked as enemies of the cross, but do you think that happens today? There are some people who are ambivalent. I could care less about Jesus. They're disinterested. They don't accept the message of the gospel. But you also have people who are hostile and are militant. You deal with two types of people in our world today, ambivalence or hostility when it comes to the cross. There are those when you share the gospel with them who are like, oh, that's not a big deal. you know. Okay, Jesus died on the cross, cool, you can believe what you want to believe. It's okay for you, just don't talk to me about this Jesus stuff. I really don't care, let me live my life. That's more ambivalence. you got those other people like, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. I hate him. I hate the cross. Don't shove that down my throat. They're, they're violent about it. Both of those are enemies of the cross. Just some are more vocal and more violent. And more um, hostile, but we don't know exactly what's going on here. But Paul says they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. How would you like to have that as your name badge? My name is enemy of the cross of Christ. That's a that's a strong strong statement. Now Paul is going to give four very specific statements about these people in verse nineteen, explaining their theology and practices of these false teachers who are enemies of the cross. What does he say? First of all, number one, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Now, this does not mean that they're going to be destroyed and never cease to, exi- like cease to exist. It means that Paul's very strong that they are going to experience torment in hell. Now, I don't have... This is an opinion. Okay, so don't take this as, as, I think, based upon these verses we're about to look at, there is a hotter, darker, more severe place in hell for false teachers than there is for just your average Joe Blow person that denies Christ. Now, again, that's an opinion. I don't know if there's levels of hell, but let's just read some of these passages and see what the Bible says about false teachers. Their end is their destruction. 2 Corinthians 11.15, Paul's talking about angels of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Peter 2.17, he's talking about false teachers. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Not just darkness, but utter darkness. Which means there's a darker dark. There's an utter darkness versus a darkness. That's where I kind of get this idea. There may be a darker darkness or a hotter part of hell. I don't know exactly how it all works out for for false teachers. Jude tells us the same thing in Jude 12 through 13. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So you got two passages of scripture that talk about utter darkness. And it doesn't speak that way about people who, who go to hell just normally. It's talking about false teachers. So, Paul here says their end is their destruction. Who's their God? Secondly, who's their God? Their God is their belly. Does anybody else have a different translation besides their God is their belly? Their appetite, their, appetite, their, their stomach, stomach? Their stomach. Okay. So, some of you are like, okay, you know, there's times where you know my God is my stomach. What's he saying there? What are they driven by? Now, it could be literally, this could be metaphorical or it could be literal. Like it could be literal, these guys are gluttons. Their god is their stomach and they, they just get fat and they're glutton. Or it could be that they're driven by appetites. We really don't know. We do know that Paul says in Romans 16, 18, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. When you go and look at false teachers in the Bible, it often talks about them being driven by appetite. And I don't know if that's just a physical appetite. I think it's more an appetite for lust, an appetite for power, a lust for power. Okay. Yeah, like a wolf. They're called ravenous wolves. So what do they want? They want to keep eating the sheep. I need, you know, the more people I devour, the more people, the more people that give money to my ministry, 1-800-Bless-me, the more they give to me, the more I'm going to devour those sheep and get, and get fatter and fatter and richer and richer. I mean, think about it. How do televangelists get rich? How do they get fat, rich? They prey upon weak-willed people that are willing to give them money. The third thing Paul says here is they glory in their shame. Now, anybody have a different translation? I'll give you the literal translation. here. Okay. Okay. They were glorying in their shame, literally their private parts. What have we been talking about? Like last week, if you were here last week, what did we spend a lot of time talking about? What was their whole issue? You must be circumcised in order to be saved. What is circumcision? The cutting away of the foreskin. They are putting all of their hope in their shame. Paul's basically using a metaphor. They are putting all their hope in their private parts and the fact that they've been circumcised. So what's he saying? The most important thing to them is not the glory of Christ, but the fact that they have an outward circumcision that's some legalistic um, procedure that doesn't really do anything. Galatians six thirteen 13-14, "...even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." And then what's the last thing he says here? Their minds are set on earthly things. What has Paul been saying all along about minds? Have the mind of Christ. Have the same attitude. Think like Christ. What's he saying here? Do they do that? No, their mind is on earthly things. Romans 8, 5-6 For those who live according to the flesh, where do they set their mind? They set their mind on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Where are they setting their mind? On the flesh, on death, on things that don't pertain to the Spirit. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So what are these guys wrapped up in? They're going to hell. Okay, number one. They're driven by appetite. Appetite. Number three, they glory in outward legalism. And number four, their mind is set on the flesh. That's totally opposite of everything related to the fruit of the Spirit, is it not? Set your mind on things above, everything related to the things of the Spirit. Okay? Now, in verse 20 through 21, Paul's going to make a sharp contrast. How does verse 20 start? But. But. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, the reason why he focuses on citizenship here is because the, Philadelphia, the Philippians were very, very proud of their Roman citizenship they were one of the few Roman colonies in that area that were actually Roman citizens and they could appeal to their citizenship. So if, it would have meant something to the original audience to talk about this whole idea of, of citizenship. So let me ask you a question. Whose country are you a citizen of? It's not a trick question. Think, think it through just for a minute. Before you give the Sunday school answer, you are a citizen. I'm, and I'm not, not a trick question. You're a citizen of the United States, are you not? Okay. So technically, you live on planet Earth. Are you in heaven yet? But your citizenship is there. Okay, so literally you have one foot in heaven, one foot in Earth. And sometimes your foot in heaven is going to conflict with your foot in Earth. You understand what I'm saying? The way you live life as a citizen of this world is oftentimes going to come in conflict in the way that your life is supposed to be in heaven. So until you get to heaven, where your citizenship is, you've got to learn how to live as a citizen of this country. And sometimes that's difficult. So how do you live as a citizen of this nation? So that's a good question. How do you live as a citizen of the United States when you're a citizen of heaven? You move to Canada? some people didn't like who was president and they wanted to move to Canada regardless of who's president regardless of who the laws what, what do you, what, are there going to be times where you as a citizen of heaven are going to find conflicts in living here on earth with the laws and with the leaders and with the government so how do you do that well Paul does give us and, and other writers so turn to Romans chapter 13 for just a moment and I just want—I'm taking this on this little detour because I think sometimes as Christians we can complain a lot about the way we complain a lot about America, but none of us have ever lived in a totalitarian regime. I mean, there's a lot of things we can complain about, but there's a lot of things we can be thankful for. Listen to how Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person who And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Christians, we need to pay our taxes whether we like it or not. We need to respect the government. Does that mean we have to always like what they do? Okay. Does sometimes the government act unjustly? Should we address that as good citizens? Yes, but for the most part, does not the government curb evil? Do we not have policemen out right now? If you, for the most part, in culture right now, if you act good... Do you have to worry about getting in trouble with the government? For the most part, no, unless there's some corruption going on. What's Paul saying? If you act bad, break the laws, the governmenting authorities are there to punish because God has put them in there. If we did not have government functioning with punishment and laws, we would live in anarchy. And nobody wants that. Okay. Alright. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, not only are we to be subject and pay taxes and honor but timothy says first of all then i urge that supplications prayers intercessions thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and those in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way stop and think about that for a moment we often focus on this verse saying we need to pray for our leaders and that's important that's what the verse is saying Pray for kings and those who are in high positions. Now, we don't have kings today, but we have those in high positions, those in government authorities. Pray for them. But notice what it says there, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You would think by some people's Facebook posts, are they living a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified life, praying for their leaders? I was convicted about that. You know, there's a lot of times where you want to spout off in social media and, and you know, copy or share something that, that, that's, that's negative and it's really easy to do. How easy, how much harder is it to pray for a leader before you want to make that post? Did you stop and pray? And number two, are you thinking about, you know what? I'm just going to mind my own business and lead a quiet, godly, dignified life. Thought about those two things before you make a Facebook post. I've been guilty of it too. Because it's very, very easy to complain about leaders and very very easy to complain about government and, and to share this and to share that and complain and complain. And when was the last time we actually prayed? Or were quiet and dignified. That's kind of a convicting verse. Because what's our what's our human nature when it comes to the governing authorities, whoever's in charge? I want to complain, complain, complain. And there's a time to complain. I'm not saying you should never complain or just sit back and take whatever they give you. I mean, we need to be, you know, good citizens, but we also need to pray. Okay. Peter also gives some insight into this. First Peter two, thirteen through seventeen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme. Nero was the emperor during this time. He was lighting Christians on fire. Or be gov- or to governors as sent by. Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So back to Philippians. Paul says, okay, we are we're citizens of this earth. We are citizens of the United States. Hopefully all of us here. I don't think anybody here's here is an undocumented worker. <laughs> if you were, that's fine. You're welcome to this class. Um, but the, the, the point is, yes, we're, we have one foot in earth, and we've got to learn how to deal with that. But Paul's point here is, listen, ultimately, where is our citizenship? Our citizenship is in heaven. And what do we do? He says, from it, we await. We eagerly await the return of our Savior, Christ Jesus. We wait for His return. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why are we waiting for Jesus to come back? What's he going to do? What's verse 21 say he's going to do? Who will what? Transformers, robots in disgust. No, he's transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Anybody here want a new body? Anybody waiting for that transformation where our body is going to be like His glorious body. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you all a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and death will be no more. And we will be like our lowly bodies. Our lowly, sinful, frail bodies will be made like His. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. How? By the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. Does it take serious power to transform lowly bodies? Yes. Did it take power for Jesus to raise from the dead? Yes. Is that power available to us right now? If you say no, let me read you a passage of Scripture. Ephesians one nineteen through twenty two. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right, and seated His Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and above every name that's name, not only this age not only in this age but in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church the power that raised jesus from the dead has been given to us and christ rules over all things colossians tells us this 115 to 20 this is talking about Jesus. Jesus, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. <clears throat> he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. Jesus is supremely sovereign over all things. He's going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his, Because where's our true citizenship? In heaven. And Paul says, we wait for that. Now I don't know what it means to wait. Because when I think of waiting, I think of like sitting in line waiting. It's it's kind of boring, right? But I think when you as a Christian wait, you wait with activity. You don't just sit around and wait. You're doing the will of the Lord as you're waiting for him to come back. But you always have that expectation that ultimately... So what's the point? Do you want to live your life so much focused on the things of this earth that you lose sight of where you really belong? Where do we really belong? In heaven. And we need to set our minds on things that are above. Because these Judaizers were setting their minds on earthly things. They were caught up in this world. Now, sometimes it's hard. When you're in the thick of this world and it's all around you, sometimes that's all you can see. But I think from time to time we need to have an upward gaze and just say, you know what? this stuff really doesn't matter because this is not really my home. Yeah, I'm kind of passing through and, I need to, and, and, and I'm living in a tent. I'm not going to put down roots. I'm kind of in a mobile home on this earth. I don't live in a real house because my real house is in heaven. But while I'm here dealing with all this junk, I want to pursue Christ. I want to, I want to seek His face, but I want to eagerly await for Him because one day He's going to come back and in the twinkling of an eye, He's going to change my body to be like His. Because he has the power to do it. And he's got everything under his feet. So chapter 4, verse 1, actually should not be chapter 4, verse 1. It should be chapter 3, verse 23, or 22. Because in the Greek text, it's actually included. That's why if you look there, maybe your translations it goes into chapter 4, but then there's like a new heading I'm um, after verse 1. But what does Paul say? Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm. That's interesting that he would say, stand firm in the Lord. Philippi was a military city with many military families. And Paul's going to use military imagery here to connect to his audience. Earlier, they were to march, what? As together. As an army, here he's saying, okay, you're not just marching, but you're, you're standing firm. The Roman armies were known for standing unmoved against an enemy. The church was to stand in the same way in the face of those who were enemies of the cross and false teachers. Now, so you've seen some of those movies. Like, what was that movie, 300? Or I, don't, I can't remember the movie. You've seen those movies where they, the Roman soldiers all get together and they put their shields up and they all stand together and they walk together. What was that? The turtle formation. Yeah, the turtle formation. They're all moving together and they're standing firm. And so when the, when the enemy comes, they're able to stand. So the Bible talks a lot about standing, standing firm. Ephesians six eleven through 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We stand together against satanic forces. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Actually, four times in that passage of scripture, he uses the word stand. Stand, 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 stand. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist, same Greek word there, stand against the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, here's, let me just stop here. This was not in my notes, but I, I want to talk about it. So, are we to go on the offensive looking for demons and, de- and the devil and try to escort them out with holy Spirit machine guns? and OK. What does the Bible say? Stand firm, and the devil will flee from you. Okay, What is stronger, the devil or sexual temptation? What is stronger, the devil or sexual temptation? The trick question. The Bible never. The Bible says stand firm against the devil and he will flee from you. What does it say about sexual temptation? Flee sexual temptation. You're never supposed to stand firm against sexual temptation. You're supposed to run away from it. Okay? You're supposed to stand firm against the devil. That's kind of a, just a trick question. But we are to stand firm with the gospel. So when the devil comes at you, and he will... Maybe not the devil himself. I talked about that Sunday morning with Judas, that Satan entered Judas himself. Um, It could be demonic forces, but when these forces of evil come against you, you stand. And there's a promise that they'll flee from you. You don't have to go on the offensive looking for the devil. He's going to come looking for you, especially if you're living a Christian life that's that's your target of of the enemy. And so Paul here is saying, listen, you guys have to stand firm. There's false teachers coming at you. There's enemies of the cross coming at you. There's the devil coming at you. There's all these forces coming at you. You stand firm. Now, does he say that in isolation? You stand firm as a little Christian out here by yourself. Does that help? What's the imagery here? Military, marching together, standing together, being a family, being an army, being connected. So when he says stand firm, it's not like, I'm this little Christian out here standing firm, hoping that things... No, it's we're standing firm together. We're encouraging one another. We're living life together. We're being an encouragement to one another so that we're all standing firm. All right? Now let's move into a fun part. Two ladies' names that you'd never want... The Two ladies' names that go down in infamy whose names are in the Bible and they're known for having, having problems. Okay? So let's read um, verses 2 through um, two through 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Two women's names are listed. How would you like to have your name listed? Euodia and Syntyche. What's Paul saying? I want them to agree, be united. It's the same word we saw back in chapter 2, verse 5. Have, what's Paul been saying all along? Have the same mind, be like-minded. These two ladies aren't like-minded. And it's gotten so bad that Paul asked for a mediator, a true companion, a yoke fellow. Zizigus is maybe what his name was, some scholars believe. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what the problem was between these two ladies. We just know they're listed. Paul says, get along, ladies. It probably was not immorality because it probably would have been called for church discipline. It's probably an issue of gossip, backbiting, petty, something petty where these two ladies were at each other's throat and they were causing division in the church. Does that happen in churches? And I'm not trying to be sexist here but are, oh man, how do I put this? Um, it's in the Bible, so I'll let the Bible answer it. Um, are, are, are sometimes women prone to not get along? Can I just say that? Can I ask that? Okay. Those of you that work with, like I've talked to my wife, she's like, I'd much rather work with men because men, I get along better with, all oh, you women are like, do, women, do you work better with men or with other women? Men. Okay. Now, obviously, there could have been, this could have been two... I'm not saying that this is strictly for women, and women always cause problems, and the men never do. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me say that. I'm saying that we have two women's names that were causing problems. Men can cause problems, too. The point is is that um, we need to be on guard in the church against gossip, slander, backbiting, and divisions. So, who knows? There may have been even factions in the church you had the U- uodia group and the Syntite group. And when there was a church fellowship or potluck, they would not sit by each other. Or when them, both of them walked into the foyer and one was there... I mean, when I first came to the church, I had to deal with this. There were two women that were at each other. And I think it was like the second month I was here, I had to have them both in my office. This is over at the old building. And I had to I like literally... I had another person in there with me, the growth group leader. And literally, I remember like standing like this... Barking on that and barking on that. And I'm like, whoa, let's calm down. And so, I mean, I had to play referee to two. And so I'm like, I'm thinking, I know what Paul probably was talking about between Euodia and Syntyche. And so evidently, these um, women, and, and it could, I mean, men can do this too, but it, particularly here, we're causing problems. Okay. And he's saying, get along. Get along in the Lord. And there had to be a a yoke fellow or a mediator to come do it. Now, turn one book over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 25 and following. Do you want to know what grieves the Holy Spirit? Let's see what grieves the Holy Spirit. What causes problems in church life. as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. What's the one thing that grieves the Holy Spirit of God? When Christians don't get along. When there's gossip and backbiting and, and slander and anger and clamoring and disunity, um, it grieves the holy, very Holy Spirit of God. And so I guess what I'd say is don't be a euodia or syntite, man or a woman. doesn't matter. All right, here we go. We're going to go to this last section. Let me see how much time do we have left. We we'll see how far we get here. We may, we may have to pick it up next week. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. And we'll all sing it together. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. I'm sorry. Anyway, that's what verse 4 says. There's a song. Rejoice in the... Some of you are looking at me like, what are we singing? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay? Paul repeats this issue of joy. Rejoice, Lord, always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. This is the theme of Philippians. Rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful. In the midst of all things, be joyful. And then he says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, That's an interesting, the ESV translates it reasonableness. It's a really hard word in the Greek language. It means gentleness or graciousness. Let your graciousness, let your gentleness be known to all. Why? What's he say? The Lord is at hand. The Lord's coming back. So in light of the second coming, why is being gracious and gentle a good testimony to a watching world? Hasn't he already addressed this? Go back to chapter 2, verse 14. He's already addressed this. Be gentle, be reasonable, be compassionate, because Jesus is coming back. Okay, look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. As a witness to a watching world, your gentleness, your unity, your togetherness needs to be evident to all. What do you want to be known for at your funeral? Here lies Sean Cole. He was a grumpy old cuss. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Um, when I first came to Emmanuel, another first came to Emmanuel, the very first funeral I did here um, was somebody that was connected to our church whose stepfather died. And this is literally what was said on the obituary. Literally, on the obituary. He had a fondness for hard wine, no, what was it? Strong drink and wild women. <laughs> That's what it said on his obituary. He had a fun, no, Nobody was a Christian in the family except for the person in our church who was connected. With. He had an affinity for strong yeah, strong drink and wild women is what it said. And I'm like, I'm not going to say that in the worship service. I'm not going to say that at his funeral. Um, but that was literally on his obituary. So you know, that was what he wanted to be known for. That's what his family knew him for. He, you know, He's strong drink and wild women. Do you want your reasonableness to be known to all? In light of the second coming, don't waste time grumbling, complaining, uh, not getting along. Be somebody whose gentleness is a positive witness to all around because life's too short. Jesus is coming back. That's Paul's point. Rejoice. Be joyful. And then Paul is going to address something that we really um, probably a lot of times struggle with. What does he say there? In verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. What's one of the things that plagues us a lot? Anxiety. Are we not anxious? Anxious, stressful. Um, But He flat out says, don't be anxious about anything. Okay. Yeah, don't worry, be happy. All right, so let's turn over to Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 6. Because Paul gets this from Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Paul gets his theology from Jesus. I mean, yeah. It should be that way. So Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. I think probably, and and here's a question, and I think I was on a Facebook post one time, where somebody asked this question. It was somebody from my former church. And they posted it. And the question was. Is anxiety a sin? And I said yes. And some people are arguing there. No it's not a sin. It's just kind of a. It's an attitude. I'm like. Yeah but. Anxiety is a sin. Because there's a command in the Bible. Not to be it. Now. Now. I think sometimes we want to downplay anxiety as a sin because it's something that's so common to us that we don't want to view it for what it really is. And I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't be I'm not saying that anxiety is not a real thing. It's, it, because it is. That's why I think the Bible talks about it so much. So look at um, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. This is Jesus. What you will put on, They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, Jesus tells us not to be anxious. Stay in Matthew for a minute. Don't turn back to Philippians. Jesus tells us not to be anxious. Paul tells us not to be anxious. So, what do you do when you're anxious? What does Paul tell us to do? Pray. Pray. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, you're in Matthew chapter 6. Go back up to verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. In close proximity, do not be anxious is the Lord's prayer. And it says, God knows what you need before you even ask Him. So why pray? Are you giving God any information that He does not already know when you pray? So why pray? If you are anxious, what do you need to know? That God is there, God is going to take care of you, that God hears, and that God loves you. How do you express that? Through prayer. So you have permission to pray when you are anxious and God answers prayer now here's the thing that we don't often like about prayer how and when God answers the prayer God promises to bring peace God promises to take care of us God promises to answer how and when he answers that's up to God So what does Paul, back to Philippians, what does Paul say there? Do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's oftentimes, we, cut, we, we skip over the thanksgiving part, don't we? I'm anxious. Let me stop. Before I get too anxious, let me think about all the ways God's blessed me and let me be thankful first. What are we tempted to do when we're anxious? Think about how all the things aren't going right. When we need to stop, Paul says, listen, you you pray, go to the Lord in prayer, but be be thankful. So let's just do a little exercise here. Let's pick it. You guys, let's pick an anxiety. You pick an anxiety. What? Money, everybody, money. Okay, so I can't pay the bills. Money's tight. I got this medical emergency. So I'm going... To the Lord in prayer, Lord, I don't know where the money is going to come from. I do not know where the money is going to come from. I'm so anxious. Stop. Father, before I ask you for the money, thank you that in that accident I didn't die. Or thank you that I have a job. Or thank you that you've given me life. I mean, all the things you can be thankful for. And then it calms your heart down like, okay, Lord, you're sovereign. I'm thankful you're good. Okay, I'm still anxious, but I'm going I'm to ask And then what does God promise to do? The interesting thing about this is it doesn't say he's going to give an answer. I mean, he does. He gives you peace. So peace is the opposite of anxiety, right? What's anxiety? Inner turmoil. So what's the peace of God? The peace of God... Which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the peace of God? Now, there's two takes on this, the way commentators look. Some of them see it as a subjective feeling of peace that God gives you. God gives you this subjective feeling. I got a peaceful, easy feeling. The other one is that it's the peace that God himself has and that God has no stress and you can trust in him because he's a sovereign God with no stress. Here's my take. I think it is a subjective feeling, but I think it's grounded in your justification and acceptance by God. So what do I mean by that? Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that we always have. An objective peace with God where we're in a right standing with Him He's our Father we're His child we are accepted we are not guilty we have the righteousness of Christ it's a peace that we're always in that never changes but are there times when you don't feel that so in a sense this peace is something you stand in at all times due to your justification Objectively, but this peace is also a subjective sense of joy and calm and contentment that Christ gives you experientially in the moment. Jesus told us in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be anxious, don't be troubled. I'm going to give you peace. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now that's a subjective all times in every way. That's a peace that God gives you in that moment. Regardless of how God may answer the request and regardless of whether your situation changes, what does God promise to give you? Peace. May your situation change. Maybe. Maybe not. May God answer it in the way that you wanted Him to answer it. Maybe. Maybe not. What's the one thing He's going to give you? Peace. And that's what you need. Because God is sovereign and He's going to flood your heart with peace. And notice the wording there. He's going to guard your hearts and your mind. Again, Paul's using military terms here. The word guard is a military term, implying this idea that peace stands on duty to keep anything out out that's going to bring anxiety. So when that anxiety comes in, peace is going to guard it, it's going to keep it out. So we are anxious, we have burdens, we have deep, deep concerns. And what does 1 Peter tell us? Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Jesus can handle it. He can handle the truth. And what can He do? Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him who's able to do far more abundantly and all we can ask or think according to His power at work in us. Because notice it says, it's the peace that passes all understanding. Okay? I think I want to stop here tonight because um, the next section, verses 8 and 9, is a whole kind of a different unit of thought that's going to take a little bit of a long time. So let's, let's stop there and see if we have any questions tonight in regards to what we've talked about or any comments or things you want to talk about. As far as peace, anxiety, prayer, citizenship in heaven, false teachers, pressing on to be like Jesus. Yes, Bob. confrontational way at all, Uh, but the idea that, uh, I believe that we're called the righteousness of God, Mm -hmm. okay, and that sometimes people think that they're not sinning intentionally, it's kind of because they think they're the righteousness of God. I'm not sure I understand. Well, when you talked about that TV evangelist saying he's, he's no longer a sinner he's no longer intentionally sinning. No, I'm not saying... He, he didn't say I'm no longer sinner. He says I don't sin anymore. Okay. So you, have, right. to redefine, you he, have to redefine... He to, doesn't intentionally sin anymore. Okay, but you have to redefine... I don't think that's what he was saying. Okay. In the whole context of what he was saying... And, and I should have played you the sound bite if I would... I mean, I don't even know where to find I it. I think I've, I've seen it. Yeah. You've, you've probably seen it? Okay. Yeah, I think I've seen it. Well... And this is like 10 years ago in the whole context of what he was saying he made it and again i don't know if i had to sit down and talk with him i'm going by his words publicly yeah. he made it sound like he got to a point where he no longer sinned and even if you got to a point where you no longer sin intentionally you have to redefine sin because right. what is sin yeah well you have to redefine I, I agree with but that. Because, because what is sin you sin in your thoughts and your words and your deeds so I could just say, I'm no longer sinning by doing outward actions. So, okay, if the Ten Commandments is my standard, I'm pretty good. But what did Jesus say? You've heard it said that do not commit adultery. Okay, I got that down. I'm not going to commit adultery. But if you have lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So Jesus redefines sin as not just outward actions, but also inner thoughts. And so I think sometimes what I've seen in that, in that, in that false teaching about perfectionism what they've done is they've lowered the bar on what sin is. They've made sin outward actions that are kind of legalistic that I can pretty much do a good job at. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go to movies. I can, I can, I can handle that set of righteousness, but they don't get to sins of the heart, sins of the thought, sins of the mouth, things like that. They kind of redefine what sin is so they can, quote-unquote, reach that state of sinless perfection. Can you comment kind on of the statement that we are the righteousness? Yes in the sense that we are saints we're not sinners anymore in our identity because we we are the righteousness of we have the imputed righteousness of Christ where we stand not guilty before God as those who are saints in God's sight we are seen as the righteousness of Christ but yet we still sin is that a better way to put it okay 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 because i don't ever want to i mean i yes i'm the righteousness of christ and yes i have christ imputed righteousness to my account that makes me not guilty before the father and i'm accepted but i also know that i have remaining flesh and galatians 5 says the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another to make me do what i don't want to do so i know i'm still going to actually commit acts of sin even though it's not my identity to be a sinner, it's to be a saint. So, like, before when you're a lost person, you're identified as a sinner who can't help but sinning. When you're a Christian, you're identified as a saint who just happens to sin from time to time. And then also take the authority and power of Christ, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes it's, 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 it's yes, yes. Yeah, I just, I just want to avoid... What Paul's point was in that passage is I've not attained to this. I'm not a super Christian where I've arrived, where I, I can look at myself and say, I, I've arrived. I, I just want us to avoid that type of attitude that we've, that we've somehow arrived in a progressive sanctification, not justification. I think maybe you're confusing the two categories of justification and sanctification. Justification is our position that never changes. Sanctification is our progress that does fluctuate. And so our position never changes. And here's a good thing, a good thing, Bob. Okay, how much time do we have? Four minutes. Okay. I don't know if I need to use the board. I'll just explain it. So your justification is your permanent standing before God as a child of righteousness, not guilty. That's a position that never changes. Your sanctification is your growth. That can change. Now here's the problem that a lot of Christians face. When it comes to their attitude about themselves, when it comes to their assurance of salvation, when it comes to how God views them, they base their assurance of salvation, their acceptance by God on their sanctification and not their justification. And what I mean by that is they look at their progress, how well they've done. God must love me more when I'm doing better. God must love me more I'm less when I'm doing less. And so God must relate to me in my sanctification, and, and and that's really the wrong way to look. God relates to you in your justification as a child who's always accepted. And so the basis the foundation of our salvation is in our justification. If you base it in your sanctification, you will be schizophrenic. I mean I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying you're always going to be wondering if you've done enough to be in God's good graces based upon your fluctuation. Does that help? Yes. And I think a lot of Christians look at their sanctification as their basis. Now I don't say don't say that you shouldn't grow or you shouldn't pursue you know, righteousness, or, or just sit back and cruise. But your foundation, your identity, your assurance is in your justification, not in your sanctification. Does that make sense? Once, once more, a basis, and one's more, a you know. And I think a lot of Christians go back and, and they base their identity in their sanctification, not their justification. They both go hand in hand. They're 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 separate, but intricately inter- one can't be without the other. If you're truly justified, you will be sanctified, but there's a distinction between the two. One's a position, one's progress. One's permanent, one's always changing. One's the basis, and one's kind of our our growth. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. All right, that's probably enough. You guys, heads ready to explode? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that. Um, well, Lord, I just want to pray. If there's anybody here tonight that's anxious, Lord, they're anxious about money, they're anxious about health, they're anxious about a relationship, they're anxious about a job, maybe they're anxious about a relationship, Lord, whatever anxiety they have, would you just um, help them through prayer to go to you? And Lord, would you just flood their hearts with the peace that passes understanding? Lord, would they know your joy? Would they rejoice in the Lord always? And Lord... Um, Help them just to trust in you. I know it's very, very hard at times, but Lord, help them to know that you will take care of them, that you will see them through this. Um, Lord, help them realize there's a church family that loves them and encourages them and wants to be there for them, that they don't go through this alone. So Lord, just help help anybody who's anxious tonight to, to not be through your joy and your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me stop recording here.